Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for EveryMind. To kick off the new series of the EveryMind podcast, Paul sits down with mental health campaigner and founder of Sophie Says, Esther Marshall. After working at Unilever in multiple HR strategy, sustainability, innovation, and diversity and inclusion roles for nine years, she left to set up Sophie Says, a new children's brand. She tells the emotional story of her sister Rebecca's struggle with mental illness and how she was a catalyst and inspiration to setting up Sophie Says after losing her to suicide. Esther also shares her experience in motherhood and how this has opened her eyes to a whole new perspective of mental health and specifically children's mental health and interestingly asks, are we raising our children to be resilient? Please keep in mind that this episode does cover suicide, so if this is triggering for you, then please skip this one. If you think EveryMind at Work can help your business, then head over to everymindatwork.com. If you like this episode, make sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As ever, enjoy the show. So welcome to the EveryMind podcast. I'm joined today by Esther Marshall. I'm really looking forward to this episode. As always, going to dive into the personal side to mental health to show everyone how human it is, but then also really looking at what can workplaces do to improve mental health within their organization. So Esther, really good to connect. How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. No, I'm, I'm all good. I'm all good. And I think you obviously was involved in this This Can Happen event, right? Um, yes. And again, amazing event. So an event that I've been involved with as well. So really looking forward to today's conversation. But as always, I think we always go straight in with a little bit about who you are. So maybe like the surface level version of Esther, and then we'll go into the personal story. But can you just let everyone listen in a little bit, uh, a little bit more information about you? Sure, of course. Um, so hi, everyone. I'm Esther. I um, My background um, was working in kind of big corporates around kind of HR strategy, well-being, um, and ended up being kind of head of gender diversity and inclusion, looking at the overall strategy of diversity and inclusion, how we can make people feel as included and comfortable. And that included stuff like mental health, included stuff like domestic violence, family friendly, like everything like that. Um, outside of work, and we'll, I guess, go into the story, I have a, a, a personal attachment to why mental health is so important um, and then also and that was because of my sister and we'll speak about that but also from a personal point of you know recently becoming a mum and you know all that goes with that and understanding you know nobody tells you about these things so I now have a three-year-old son and, and it's about balancing you know your your job and being a mother and trying to have it all and, and everything like that so kind of yeah, I guess there's corporate side of me, there's the mental health side of me outside work and uh, and also being a mum kind of encapsulate kind of what why stand for. Yeah, and I think I'm sure lots of people listening to this are potentially HR professionals, so I'm sure they can relate to that juggling of being a mum and your own mental health and then obviously the work that you do as well. Um, so I'm sure many people can relate to that story, but I want to sort of touch on a little bit about your your passion for mental health, which is obviously clear to see from the work that obviously you do. And, and touching on potentially that personal experience. So, um, you know, yeah, can you just share a little bit about your personal experience and why you're so passionate about mental health? Of course. Um, yeah, so growing up, um, it was me and two other sisters. Um, I'm the eldest and I uh, had a sister born 20 months after me. Um, super, super close, shared a room for the majority of our lives until we we're about 12. And then, you know, everything happened. We went into our own rooms, but, um, used to always be dressed up in the same clothes and I everyone always thought actually that she was the eldest one she was so much more confident than me I would always stand behind her very very introverted and and she was very extrovert you know very creative um and that kind of changed once she got into secondary school 
And I kind of gained my confidence as I went to secondary school and she kind of lost it. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of the issues started to come out with her. I think she was an incredibly bright child and went to incredibly pushy school. And I think that pressure of you have to be perfect and you have to always perform, you can never have an off day, just started to make her kind of deteriorate. Um, and less and less she was going out with friends, less and less she was doing, you know, she was always the one that was out and now less and less that was the case. Um, she did unbelievably in all of her exams, went to medical school, and that's where we started to see a kind of spiral out of control. Um, I think it was too much, um, you know, especially as we've all heard in the news with junior doctors and how much pressure is on them. Um, there was already a kind of anxiety and depression that had been diagnosed, but we didn't have anything further than that. But doing an, uh, an A&E rotation and um, constantly having people die on your watch and not being, a, you know, basically being like a year qualified and having to, you know, look after all of these people in, in such kind of dire kind of conditions with lack of sleep, which we know also affects mental health. Um, and she started having um, psychotic episodes. Um, I didn't know at first what they were, um, but then was with her in A&E and uh, then we had the whole issue with the kind of NHS services within mental health provision, which, you know, again, is a conversation for another time, but how the system is, is, is broken and, and how we managed to eventually get her into a hospital, but it took us ages in order to, be, to do so. Um, and basically from then, she, every year it was, you know, she was, we, we'd think we'd have it okay. We think we'd got a diagnosis. We'd get her on the right medication. She'd come out of hospital. She'd kind of just about get back into the real world. And then we'd have another relapse and she'd go back in, um, which was horrible to watch, especially during the psychosis um, and especially watching the kind of the, the, the manic phases and then also the depressed phases. Um, there were a few times where there weren't enough beds in hospital, so she stayed with me um, and had to go and get the medication for her and then administer the medication. So it was a real kind of step up in, you know, understanding around mental health, around mental illness, the dosages, how a tiny, tiny increase or decrease affects so much and how, you know, if, if you have cancer treatment, it's very much you will have this amount of chemotherapy, whereas in mental illness, it's we don't know how you're going to react to this medicine. So things can take a lot longer and there can be huge side effects. And um, in fact, my sister actually came off the antipsychotics at one point because she said she'd prefer one of the side effects was um, she carried on eating and eating. So she put on weight. Um, and she had a bit of a control around eating. It was never diagnosed as an eating disorder, but it was the one thing she could control. So she said to me one day, and I remember it clearly, I prefer to be psychotic than overweight. Um, and so we had a big spiral at that point. Um, and over the years, you know, she was in mental health wards, NHS mental health wards for four or five months at a time, visiting her most days and understanding how the NHS works, how the medication system works. Um, they are harrowing places. Um, to go and visit and be there and you know you could be there for half an hour and then depending on what state she would in she would then say please leave or you could be there for five hours and um, you just don't know and the amount of stuff that goes on um, while you're there with other patients as well it's just a really harrowing place to be which always seemed 
to me so strange when someone's trying to get better how they can be in such a harrowing place um for her luckily for some of it she didn't remember you know when you're in the psychotic episode but for me I mean every time I just come out and sit in the car and just cry before I went anywhere um and I was there most days um and ultimately it took us six years to get I mean I've missed out loads but just as a, a summary but it took us six years to get a proper diagnosis that she had bipolar and there was one amazing consultant that said to us look I think they put you on antidepressants because you're treating the depression, but I think that's hiding the mania. So let's take you off all of your medication, see what happens on no medication in a controlled environment, and then work it out. And that was really harrowing because watching the psychosis with no medication and watching the mania with no medication and depression with no medication was, was just the scariest, most horrible thing you could watch someone that you love go through. And then ultimately this, this consultant was amazing, got her on the right medication and got her better. Um, and she was really just about starting life again. Um, and the more and more consultants and psychologists and psychiatrists I've spoken to have, have now said that actually, ironically, once they're a little bit better, they can start to think straighter about what they want to do. So although she spoke about suicide while she was going through the psych psychosis, the consultant said, you know, we don't think she'll go through with it because she can't right now. Um, and so 27th of January, um, two years ago, my mum came home to a, to a note. Um, and then we had the police knock on the door to say that they'd found my sister's body. Um, and life just changed in an instant. Um, I still can't sit on that specific sofa in my parents' house when the police came. Um, I still have flashbacks. I, I couldn't sleep for weeks. Um, you know, then you go through the whole thing of could I done anything better? I was there every day, but maybe I could have done this. Maybe I could have done that. Um, and that whole thing of, well, I helped her get better. And ultimately, is that the reason why she then, we then lost her? So it, it's been a, a long journey. It was then, you know, 27th of January, we then in March went into lockdown. So I had an 18 month old whilst doing a full time role at Unilever whilst trying to grieve. Um, and it was a real wake up sign to me of, although I've been looking after my sister and prioritizing her mental health, now is the time for me to prioritize my own mental health. Um, and while I went on maternity leave, my sister said to me, I was getting very angry around the fact that all the books that I was reading to my son didn't have any empowering messages or important messages that they need, especially as I was doing diversity inclusion for my job. It was like my bread and butter. Um, there was no representation. So how can we expect kids to really like, achieve their potential if they aren't seeing themselves? And, and one of the things Rebecca loved to do with her mental health was draw. Um, and she was a phenomenal artist. And she said to me, look, you know, I'm I'm kind of off work at the moment because I'm recovering. Why don't you write the book that you want to read to your son? And I'll do the illustrations for it. I thought, oh, what a lovely project that we can do together. Um, she then went back into hospital and she said to me, look, I just don't think I have the strength to do the illustrations, but please find someone else to do it and come and show me. So I would go to the hospital and show her the book as it was kind of happening and, and the whole process. So she really fed into it. Um, that one was Sophie says I can I will all about what she was saying about young girls really understanding what they can do in in life and not having all of the media and everything that kind of puts them down like 
where they can go if they really believe in themselves. Um, and poignantly, she read that book to my son. I didn't know at the time that everything was going to happen. Um, and the two nights after she passed away, I wrote the second one. Sophie says, it's okay not to be okay in her memory. Um, and the more and more I was working on the books, the more I felt connected to her. And I kind of, throughout lockdown, working at Unilever, trying to do that, trying to look after my son, trying to grieve, which is virtually impossible when you can't see anyone. Um, especially with Rebecca, because she was very much a, I want to see you when I speak to you because the anxiety would be too much on the phone. She didn't know if you were lying. So I just thought, okay, well, once lockdown's over, I'll open the door and she'll be there again. So I just, I couldn't grieve properly. And so I eventually sat down with my bosses at, at Unilever and said, look, I, I have to give this a try. This is where I feel connected to my sister. This is making so much of a difference um, over lockdown, so many parents are saying, this is helping me talk to my child about their feelings. I was like, if I can give my sister this legacy, then that's, you know, the least I can do for her and her memory. Um, and so about five months ago now, I left my kind of corporate role um, and I've been working on kind of providing mental health resources for teachers and parents and, and children through these books and, and other education hubs that we're doing in the hope that I can you know, keep her legacy alive. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. It's amazing. Such an amazing story. And um, me nodding through some of it because I can just relate to a lot of it. And and I think, you know, what you're doing now, trying to turn that story into a positive so soon after, I believe as well, your sister, I think is inspiring and amazing. Like, you. you know, I, I do the same with obviously my dad and losing my dad to suicide, but, you know, trust me, <laughs> took me like four years to talk to one person about it because I know how difficult those first two years are and equally if I had to be in lockdown during those first two years I don't know how I would have dealt with it so um massively inspiring and hats off to you for the amazing work that you're doing and there's so much that I want to ask you I think the first question that I want to ask you is because you know, the, the marathons I've just run are about the school system and about young people. And we do a lot of work in the corporate space and we do a lot of preventative work. But, you know, your story, how different do you think it would have been if you would have been educated on it? Because you spoke about the mental health unit. You spoke about not really understanding mental illness um, and almost, I guess, trying to support your sister. It was very much like reactive. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just trying my best. Um how different do you think it would have been for your sister and for you if there was more education earlier on? Yeah, I mean, I speak to my grief counselor about this a lot. Um, she's told me that I can't keep going over it in my head because we'll never have an answer, but it it comes up a lot of, I genuinely think the outcome would have been different. I genuinely believe that. And especially now watching my three-year-old, of we don't give kids enough credit of how much they understand, how much they get, how much, how resilient they can be if they're taught the right things, how much they really need parents and teachers to be able to talk them through their feelings because they need to be directed, but actually they're also directing us. So although I think a lot of people think it's parents and teachers need to teach children, it's vice versa. My son is teaching me so much and I think the education system needs to change completely and that it's more of a mutualistic kind of learning rather than teachers and parents just telling kids what to do. And I, I think it's that, that connection that's missing, which is, which is why I've been 
I know the work we do with Beyond, and I'm also working with them in some and Happy Space, some of the amazing things that are done for kind of older kids. But for me, watching my son and also seeing Rebecca in the kind of early years, it's like there is nothing really out there for kind of age two to seven because people think they can't handle this, but they really can. My son already, like we sit and we talk about feelings. He says, Mommy, I'm I'm sad. And then we talk about, are you sad or are you angry or are you scared? And the fact that he can at three years old decipher those three different things. I couldn't do, even in my grief counseling, I was like, I can't tell whether I'm in pain. I can't tell whether I'm numb. I can't, you know, if our kids learn it at this age, you know, as I've kind of put into kind of branding, like Sophie says, making life's most important lessons fun to learn. You know, that's what we want to do really is take this angst out of everything that we're doing and everything, oh, it needs to be so hard and so dark. It doesn't need to be dark if we're being proactive about it rather than reactive about it. Mm. Yes, in Rebecca's case, in your dad's case, and many other cases, it's a really dark system to be part of. But if we can do it at the beginning of their lives, we can make it a really happy place and make it okay if it's not happy, mm. you know? Um, and, and that's really what I'm championing. But I, I, yes, would I love to kind of change policy, change education the way it is? I mean, I'm literally looking at the moment of applying to schools for my son and I just, the system is broken. And yeah, I, am I there, the first person kind of flying the flag to change the education system? Yes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's just funny. Like, I think about my my youngest is five. And um I spoke, I did a talk on vulnerability the other day. So like talking about vulnerability in the workplace. And I was thinking about, you know, how I encouraged, I've got two boys, two sons. I encourage emotion for my two boys. Like I want them to talk openly about it. I want them to know that it's okay to talk about their mental health. But even as a dad myself, I found myself saying to my five-year-old um, when he was four or five or whatever, you know, come on, stop crying. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Like stop crying. It's going to be fine. Now, I was questioning when I was putting this talk together of why, like, why did I say that? Because I know that it's okay for him to cry and I want him to show emotion and everything else. And I was thinking to myself, the reason why I say that is because I'm not ready to feel that. Like, I'm not ready to feel and see the pain of my son crying because I was brought up to believe that crying's bad, right? And like, you know, being sad is bad, but actually a five-year-old being sad is okay. And, and me saying, come on, stop crying, wipe your eyes is just because I'm not, I'm not like ready to hear him cry and deal with my own emotion around that. Yeah. And it's then funny how, when you look at vulnerability, you know, my dad was a very compassionate guy and, you know, very sensitive guy and a good dad, but we had those moments as well. Like, come on, stop crying. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So like, as I grow up, I then start to think, you know, I don't want to cry. I, don't, I can't cry. It's not yeah. good. And, and, and that emotion, as I always say, specifically with men, and young boys, that emotion doesn't go away. It just turns into anger, turns into other things. So I think it's so, so important what you're doing. And I'm sure, again, probably going back to the HR part, point of it as well, the work that you was doing at Unilever and in the workplace, I'm sure, again, you could probably see how if we change the education system, that would be a lot easier for you guys as well. Yeah, everything we were doing at Unilever was preventative. Yeah. Oh, sorry, was um, reactive because of stuff that could have been prevented through education systems, yep. without a doubt. It's ingrained in society, and especially because it's a global company, ingrained in other societies, even more so than the UK, that just bring up this kind of, 
this is how you should be, this is how, you know, the amount of burnout that we had because people didn't know when to say, I'm feeling like I might burn out because people thought that was weak. You know, it's about changing that narrative of actually it's so strong for someone to come forward and be like, this, this is a lot. And I, I didn't until it got too much of like, mm-hmm. no, Esther, you, you should be able to work full time with an 18 month old in lockdown after you've just received the news that your sister's body's been found and you've got the police report and you've got the hearing and you've been trying for the past six years to maintain your career whilst in and out of mental health wards. You know, like it, I still thought I was weak for saying like, maybe I want to leave my career. You know, it was, it was a real point of a crossroads of like, I have to do this. And it was because of my son that I did, because I was like, otherwise I'm not going to be able to, you know, be the mum that I want to be for him. I need to take some time for myself mm-hmm. and kind of be with Rebecca and feel that. Because if I'm not going to feel it, it's going to come out in another way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we did that research over lockdown. I was really intrigued to see. And we, so we commissioned some um, external research. And over 80% of parents were worried about their child's mental health but only a third of them had anything in the house that would talk about it or deal with it because parents were so scared of what to say. They were like, I don't want to make it worse, which is why I basically, you know, did the books. And then also we did a, an activity book that went with the books, which basically had pointers at the bottom of each page of like, parents, if you're worried, don't say anything other than what's on the pages. Mm-hmm. And we had so many messages from parents be like, my son said, this or my daughter said this or actually I've just lost my father to COVID and we had the funeral and your books arrived and now actually my daughter was telling me about you know how she felt and we could talk about it and it's it's done through fun ways you know I've put like a a bunny in there so bunny's hiding on every single page so a lot of young kids are like we want to read the bunny book I'm like that's absolutely fine I'd love them to find bunny on every page whilst parents are reading these messages it's okay not to be okay it's okay to cry because they'll go in subliminally and it's about making it fun rather than dark mm. yeah so important and like you say education is so important because even a lot of the work that we do in the workplace so every mind at work you know what we focus on as the biggest challenge is stigma right so that stigma in the workplace and you know, people question awareness still in 2021, but, you know, we're still so far behind because as, you, as you've as you said, it's like, we're not educated on that. And I'm sure even like those activities that we should be doing with our kids, you know, if we did them with leaders and stuff, they, they probably would benefit from it as well because we've never had that. We've never had that um, education around it. And I think it's, you know, no matter the initiative that you launch in a business, no matter what you try and do, if stigma and shame still exists, then you're not going to be able to, you know, reach those people. Because as you've said, that shame that your sister probably carried, the shame that you carried, the shame that I carried, the shame that my dad carried, the shame that everyone carries is because of poor education and stigma. And and a, a new initiative launched in the workplace doesn't change that. Like you have to start with education, awareness and tackling that stigma first, because as you said, it's so, so important. And, and you touched on your, your sister's journey as well, which I just want to briefly touch on as well about how there was pressure at school and to be perfect and and all of that and you know how how much of an impact do you think that has on everyone in general as well that pressure to be perfect yeah I mean so much so that the her school asked me to come and read the books and I just said it's a step too far I just I just can't walk into that institution because I know the pressure that they put on her and 
it was always you have to achieve you have to go to Oxbridge you have to get full marks I mean there was no let up whatsoever I remember watching it because I didn't go to a school that was like that um and I just remember seeing the difference in her and how schools get away with that now I I, I just don't know there's still many of them out there and, and and some children thrive on being told that they need to do better but there, there's a way that you can do it without you know this idea of perfectionism that it, it's never going to happen and then you you instill in these children an unrealistic expectation from day one mm-hmm. so what do you expect and I just I, yeah, I just can't get my head around that. And, you know, now for choosing schools, my son, I am looking at that. I'm asking questions, which I wouldn't have done a few years ago of what's the pastoral care like? What, it, what art do you have a, a mental well-being room? Do you have a music space? Do you, how much do you focus on art? You know, things where they can be creative rather than they have to do well in maths and English. You know, those things can be taught, but like, are we bringing up our children to be resilient beings? Yeah, myself and Rebecca grew up in a world where there was no social media and we got to this place. What are we going to do with our children that have then social media as well? Mm -hmm. It just needs to be a vital part of education right now, which, you know, I've seen some schools are doing it, but it's off their own backs because their teachers or their staff or their well-being leads actually care about that rather than this is baseline curriculum of what it needs to be. Yeah, and that social media point is really interesting because there was an interesting study that showed that individuals that feel fulfilled, that have purpose, that have high levels of self-esteem, social media doesn't impact them. Um, But those that don't, those who have low self-esteem, aren't fulfilled, feel lonely, social media has a massive impact on them. And, you know, my eldest, you know, I see a lot of the school talking about social media and the impacts of social media, but... The, the gap is they're not teaching kids to have high self-esteem and resilience and everything else. So it's fine taking away social media, warning people of the dangers. But actually, why don't we, as you say, from a very young age, talk about resilience and self-esteem and, and, and everything else? Because then, you know, of course, social media is still going to be hard for people. But like we say, if that study is true and you feel good within yourself, social media doesn't have a massive impact on you. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's yeah and I think again that carries through to the workplace and and I want to touch on personal experience because obviously you know you've been open today and you know again hats off to you for for being so open in such a short space of time after your sister but I know you've obviously done talks in in organizations and things like that how much how much importance do you put on personal experience in the workplace in someone like you you know sharing your story to individuals I think it does help anytime I do a talk I have so many people that come up to me after and say oh I think I'm struggling but I didn't necessarily know like maybe I'll go and speak to my line manager about it or oh I am actually a line manager and I've seen some of these signs and some of my people but I hadn't really thought about it maybe I should think about it and I think that personal experience it's just human heart isn't it and I think a lot of business has kind of forgotten that especially because of covid like in, in part it has you know I feel like business leaders become more personal you saw them at home they might have their families whereas you only ever saw them in a corporate space you know so so that has helped but it's also made everybody so much more distant because when there's a screen in front of you you don't have to be as open um so 
I think there's a there's a, a massive massive advantage in a way to saying and, and although it does still hurt and I, I have coping mechanisms after each talk I do of like how to then go home sit and deal with it so that I actually know what I've done that day rather than just going straight into the next thing it's helping other people because they're hearing personal stories it's making it human and that for me is then creating a culture because you can have great ideas but it's once the education and the culture is embedded that things start to take off if you don't have that it's not going to happen 100 mm -hmm. yeah it's, it's like you say it's making it human it's understanding that every time I do a talk it's understanding it took me a long time to get here but everyone listening to this is a human being like people are going to react to it very differently some people might have the same experience as me some people might not but it's can I make people in this next hour reconnect with them being a human being them having mental health and potentially approaching it in a different way and I think as you said that is needed so much in the workplace like we we do lots of polls on our sessions and you know I think we've polled over 10,000 people in the last year and there's a question that we ask people of like who would you speak to about your mental health at work and we have like HR mental health first aiders you know EAP everything and then we have no one at work and like you probably don't need me to tell you this it's like basically nearly 50 percent of people that we ask that question to say no one at work and that organization has a you know a huge amount of resources do a lot for mental health but still there is something ingrained in these individuals that they don't feel like they can talk to anyone at work. And as you know, when you look at it, you spend a third of your life at work. That's a very lonely place to be if you can't speak to anyone about it. And, and I think, as you said, personal experience, whether it's you, whether it's someone else, that makes people remember that they're human. It's okay to talk about it. And then they might feel more comfortable to share to a colleague. So I think, again, you know, personal experience plays a massive part. And then also just, you know, with Unilever and the work that you've done, is there anything else that you've seen businesses do that's had a big impact when it comes to mental health in general? Yeah, I do think that mental health first aid has help, but I think it's only a first stage. It, it needs to come not only from the kind of well-being leads. The next stage for me was then leadership, which we were very lucky at Unilever to have great leadership that always kind of spoke openly about you know, I'm struggling, I need a day, I need this or whatever. Then the thing for me was always, okay, middle management, right? That have grown up in the very hard kind of stages of life of a, a, a bit like, you know, you were saying about your dad, it was, you know, you will succeed, you will do this. It, you can't not be okay. Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And until that part of the workforce understand that it's okay not to be okay I don't think we're going to get through that for me was the biggest wall we and I know a lot of companies still the leadership aren't there I was very lucky at Unilever that they were but I always found that middle management was the biggest kind of breaking point for me of like we're moving we're moving we're chugging along very slowly but we're getting there and then you hit this wall because they just can't understand it like you're at work you're getting paid like why would you not carry on I don't have time to go and talk to all my people and see how they're doing. They should just be getting on. That's what HR is for, or that's what this is for. It's like, well, then you're not embedding a culture of safety within your team. And when they used to come to me and be like, oh, another person's resigned, they used to be like, well, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, with the kind of culture that's, that's in that team. And, it, and it's never everywhere, but it's, 
we talk about culture. Yes, there's a culture at company level, but I think line managers have so much importance here that there's a culture within teams. Even on the floor that I sat in, there were like 30 different teams. That's 30 different cultures that someone's creating. So as a team lead or a line manager, there's so much importance. And I used to find when I was working at Unilever and with other companies that we then used to work with, one of the biggest things is that people get promoted on their knowledge of a subject rather than on how they can deal with people. So I used to business partners, senior, senior leaders who were like, I don't want to have a horrible conversation with someone. I can't tell them they're not doing their job. Can you do that? That's what HR is for. And it's like, how are you so senior yet you can't do that? So no wonder you're not embedding a culture because yes, you have a phenomenal expertise of X subject, but you've, you know, you've been at a company for 15 years and you've never managed somebody. Mm. You know, and that is the similar, that's the same kind of thing I see as what we were talking about before with like the three-year-olds and getting it right at the beginning of why is there not more training when people enter the workforce into how to have a difficult conversation with someone, how to do that. Now, as an HR professional, I feel absolutely fine to do all of those, but, it, but it's only HR that gets that training at the beginning mm. rather than anybody else. And that, again, is the kind of missing link. Yeah, so important, so important. And again, it's like you, the way that I kind of look at that is, as you say, you've got your whole company and at the top, you've got fresh flying water coming through and then you've kind of got, you know, toxic being put in place. And by the time it gets to the bottom, it's completely toxic. And, and you know, it's, it's about, you know, as you say, trying to look at the important role that a line manager plays, but just, as you say, some simple education. And I think it comes back to that personal experience, making them realise it's human again, like, mm-hmm. You know, I've done loads of talks to people that just don't get it, you know, construction workers, whatever. But equally, they walk out of that talk feeling human again and can potentially see it in a way because maybe they're a parent. You know, maybe they understand it because their children are going through it or, um, you know, and it's about making sure that they are educated, as you've said, because, you know, a good manager isn't someone that's been at the business for a long time or is good at their job. It's someone who's good with people. And that's so, so important. So I think that's a really, really important piece of advice for people to take away as well. Um, I think it brings it closer to home as well, right? It's like, oh, that's always somebody else's problem. And then suddenly you have one of these talks and you're like, oh, that really could be me. You know, like yeah. mental health does not discriminate. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, where you've grown up, what you, like it's it's the same as physical health. You could, you know, one day be diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, same with, with mental health, mental illness. And I think that human side then lends it to, oh, wow, this is closer to home than I thought it was. Mm. on that question did you ever feel like you would be impacted by this be impacted by like yourself did you ever feel like you would have to go through what you've been through growing up um no I I think it's I didn't see any of it coming really I started to see with Rebecca things changing but it in a way sadly she kind of educated on me so like when I then had my son and there was no sleep no anything we were still dealing with Rebecca in and out of hospital there was a lot going on it was how can I put stuff in place to protect my mental health rather than thinking I have to be the superwoman mom that can do that can do this can do that and it was like it was okay for me to say sorry guys I just need a day or can someone come over and just take the baby for two hours while I go back to sleep because I've been up with him for seven hours rather than pushing through and feeling like you had to be this kind of superhero because you're never allowed to to have that um does it run in the family I don't know it never had done before 
do am I have I got a heightened awareness of it to double check yes and um, mm-hmm. with everything that I've been through in the past two years as well regardless of whether it's in the family or genetic like it, it was a lot um I, for me personally I found the the police report just just the worst but talking about it for me has helped I'm putting things in place with my grief counselor to work out on on how I can do it but I think if I didn't have those things in place I'd be in a very very different place yeah no I asked because I always start my talk by saying I didn't believe mental illness would impact me until the day that it did you know because I did not expect my dad to ever struggle my dad to take his own life like you know any of that because my education of mental illness growing up was very you know black and white and however brutal this sounds straight jackets padded cells and personalities that didn't look like us like that was what I was taught to believe so if you would have told me at 16 17 years old your dad's about to take his own life I would laugh like that is never happening to us so I think it's you know going back to that line manager education and talks in the workplace it's getting people to actually sit back and realize this impacts so many more people than you believe you are human you have mental health it can impact you the same way as you say physical illness can impact anyone and just getting them to understand it slightly differently can then maybe get them to approach it differently with their team and everything else um But yeah, I'm glad, like you say, you found those those tools for your for your own self as well. Just touching on those tools, you know, what what do you do for your own mental health in particular? Yeah, I've um, I've started to go swimming. Um, I was doing running. Rebecca used to love running, so I always felt like when I was running, I was with her. Dying, that's so, so so similar so similar. Like it's same with my dad. Like me and my dad used to run together. Right. Going for a run is me and my dad having a conversation like it's so strange isn't it like you say yeah and I think because it used to I mean she used to have to walk at least like five or six miles a day like she would walk to the hospital she was working at or whatever and walk back in order to kind of keep her mental health as okay as it could be um uh but I was I just always felt like running kept me with her but then I also felt that I was never actually switching off because I was either listening to a podcast or I was, you know, I could, I was like, oh, my phone's on me. I'll just check if I'm, you know, on my like warm down or whatever. Um, so, and Rebecca also loves swimming. So I've started doing that because I can't have my phone on me. I literally, and, and it's really good. It helps me think creatively because there is nothing I can do other than swim Mm-hmm. Um, and that for me has just been fantastic and it, and it makes me take a bit more of my day because I have to get there whereas with a run I literally could just go straight I have to get there I have to swim uh, shout you know like all of those things and it gives me a good kind of hour that I wouldn't have ever given myself in the day um, and that for me has just been fantastic and um, the other thing as well it's, it's all to do with Rebecca she absolutely loved baking and cooking I mean absolutely loved it so I love kind of finding some of her favorite recipes um, and doing those. And she always loved really intricate recipes. So it's not like I can have TV on in the background or look at my phone or anything. Like I really need to concentrate. And all of these things help me switch off and either be with her or just be in my own presence rather than the crazy amount of, you know, things that are going on in everyone's life. So those two things for me, I just, I try and kind of build into every week. Mm, nice it's really cool I like swimming actually the way you've said that is it's like I was just thinking aloud because I say running is like mindfulness to me but equally there's those distractions of oh I'm just going to check my phone or I'm going to do this whereas swimming seems to be like forced mindfulness like (laughs) 
you can't do anything else but be mindful in the water <laughs> yeah like my, my phone is is locked away and if yeah. I don't swim like it's it's yeah. not gonna happen so um yeah it's I've been doing that for a few months now and it's it's been really quite game-changing yeah and even like you say the getting you know getting ready like the shower afterwards like all of that kind of stuff it's that routine as well that helps you take that hour out of your day or whatever it is 90 minutes out of your day for that it's really really cool thank you for sharing um and then last question so this is a, a little bit of a different question it's like a, a one thing that we always ask some some of our guests can you share one piece of advice that you were given that's resonated the most with you yeah um probably doesn't work with podcasts but um there was a mental health nurse that was on the ward with Rebecca who once said to me listen more than you speak mm-hmm. and it just like changed everything in my life because especially while Rebecca was going through psychosis she'd bring up all this stuff and I'd feel like I needed to tell her like you it's not that it's not that it's this or whatever and ultimately she just wanted me to listen and I found that also in my professional life, like people trust you more when you listen, because it's not about you, it's about them. And um, so I know with the podcast, you're asking about my story and I'm speaking, but it, I really try and instill that in the majority of like the work that I do now. It's about listening to the other person and hearing about them and their story or what they want. And um, that for me, I kind of, I try and put that into my everyday life yeah I love that again it's, it's funny like when I do my talk I talk about ask listen signpost and I tell them the importance of listening after I've just spoken for an hour <laughs> um so you always feel a bit awkward for, for yeah. suggesting that but like I, I honestly I think that's so so important like, I always love the quote you have two ears and one mouth for a reason yeah um, but also like the listening piece when it comes to mental health I remember with my dad like similar to what you just shared with Rebecca there you know, when my dad started to open up to me, I would stop, like, dad, stop, you know, you've, you've got nothing to be worried about, like, we love you, you know, why don't we go for a walk, we'll come back, we'll watch the football, you know, and I, I would go into this, like, solution mindset, and, and I, never, I never understood why, but when I look back, I'm like, I wanted to solve it, because I wasn't ready to hear what he was about to tell me, like, I'm not, you know, my dad's about to tell me that he's really struggling, you know, potentially that he's feeling suicidal, like, I don't, I don't want to hear that, I'm not ready to hear that, so I naturally jump in with, like, this solution and feel like that's the best way, and then when I struggled, you know, myself, I remember thinking to myself, I don't want your solution, I just want your ears, like, yeah. that's all I want, I don't want you to solve it for me, if I feel comfortable to talk to you, Esther, like, I'm sharing, just, just listen, like, just give me your ears, that's it, and, and people really struggle with that, because as you said, you know, when someone's telling you their true feelings, it's hard to hear, isn't it? It's very difficult to hear. So is, is that something that you still find difficult now or are you better at it, the listening part? I'm getting better. I think, especially my grief counsellor now, she said to me, you wanted to fix her. I was like, yeah, I wanted to fix her. And I failed in that. So now can I find other people to fix? You know, that's that's where I went straight away. And my grief counsellor has been helping me in that you don't need to fix anyone. That's not what you're, that's not what you're here to do. You know, you are already out of your depth trying to fix Rebecca, even like, you know, big consultants who've been doing this for years couldn't do that. Like I was so out of my depth. It's not about fixing. It's about humanizing as we've been talking about. And it's about finding a path and giving other people tools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's not fixing and not being able to fix is also not your fault. That's one thing I've been working on a lot. Amazing. Honestly, I think suicide grief is a very, very individual grief. And when you speak to someone who's been through it, like 
yeah, there's been so much that you've said that's resonated with me. And I'm sure anyone who's listening to this that might have had a similar experience have potentially resonated as well. So I really want to sort of thank you for that. Um, just to finish up, can where can people connect with you? How can they find out about the books? Yeah, sure. So um, we're at Sophie Says Official on Instagram and sophiesaysofficial.com online. Um, there's tons of lesson plans for parents, teachers on there, free to download. Um, they've all been designed by educational psychologists with us and been you know, put together and designed with the Sophie Says character. So yeah, I'd love for as many people to have it as possible. Um, you know, all completely free. The books obviously you pay for, but um, yeah, we just want as many children to feel as comfortable as possible and kind of grow up in a world where they start to feel a bit more resilient and can achieve their full potential because of that. Amazing. And do you do still talks in organisations as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I definitely do. I'm in and out of organisations all the time. I do a lot of consultancy with organisations around um, diversity, inclusion, mental health, all of that kind of stuff as well. I just think it's so important. Amazing. And what we'll do is we'll connect um, in the show notes to this. We'll put your LinkedIn, your email address and things like that as well if people want to reach out to you. But Esther, thank you so much for being so honest today and sharing. Um, I've really appreciated you coming on. It's been really good to connect as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.